Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 18th, 2017, and this is episode 29, a special election midweek show. I'm Ian, and Scott's the other guy. We'll still have our regular show at the end of this week, but we've done a few fun interviews this past week, and we wanted to share them with you. First up, we have James Filippini, leader of Your Political Party, and following that, we'll have Clayton Wellwood, who's the leader of the BC Libertarians. We spoke to both of them to get a sense of why they think we need more options than just the BC Liberals, NDPs, and now the Greens, and what their parties are about. Then, at the end of the show, I chatted earlier today with University of Victoria Economics and Public Administration's professor, Lindsay Teds, about the economics of the promises and the platforms of the BC Liberals and the NDP. We also spoke a bit about the BC Greens, although their full platform isn't out yet for her to really dig into. And always, if you enjoy the show, make sure to tell a friend about us and leave a review on iTunes. I'm James Filippelli with Your Political Party of BC. We're a growing political party in British Columbia trying to bring complete transparency to government. I think with technology the way it is today with the internet, that everything should be online, all contracts, all spending, all the information the government collects, and then let British Columbians have more of a say in what their government is doing. Thanks for having me, guys. No problem. So it's a nice background on YPP, but sort of why did you get involved in that instead of maybe sticking with one of the traditional political parties? Yeah, I grew up here in BC and I've followed politics ever since I can remember. And I've just never really been happy with any of the existing political parties. Before I started the party, I reached out to uh, all the registered political parties to try and see what they were planning to achieve what their goals were, what the party was about, and just found that there wasn't really a home there. And I thought that, you know, BC really needs a fresh start. They need a party that's, we need a party here in BC that's focused and dedicated to transparency and isn't uh, based in ideology and instead is based in that idea that we can use evidence to make the best decisions no matter what the issue is. So you started uh, this party but third parties always have a bit of a reputational issue and there's always an issue of building credibility. How do you see your political party addressing that? Uh, it's definitely been a challenge. Uh, I actually started the party 15 years ago. And so over the past little while, I was focusing a lot more on my career outside of politics, but just doing this a little bit in, in the meantime on the side, trying to learn a bit about the process, learn about... Uh, the issues that are important to British Columbians and to the political situation here in BC. And then it's really been over the last three years that I've been able to focus on it a lot more. So we've gone from two candidates in the last provincial election. Uh, It looks like we'll be up to at least nine uh, for this election. And so I think that through that growth, through the quality of the candidates we're running, uh, it'll show that we should be taken seriously and the issues that we're bringing up are, are important issues to British Columbians. Are there any star candidates you want to give a quick shout out to? Uh, I think all of our all of our candidates are great. Um, we have most of Vancouver covered. Uh, we have a candidate out in Surrey South. Uh, looks like we'll have one in Surrey Green Timbers as well. We're just kind of finishing up all the paperwork and getting it in the next day or so before the deadline here. So. so how are you working to sort of build your credibility beyond just having names on the ballot? Like a lot of times that single issue or fringe party, almost no offense, will get... You know, 100 votes. And it gets really tough to be more than just, you know, another name on the ballot. Sure. I think that uh, that's definitely important. Um, although, you know, transparency is at the heart of everything we're doing. It isn't the only issue that we have a platform on. So we do have a, a full platform that's all available online on our website, yourbc.ca. Um, we've also created an open platform so that anyone who wants to give feedback, give input, suggest ideas, criticize our ideas can use our online platform to kind of do that right in the open for everyone to see. Um, So I think having that broad platform kind of speaks about the larger goals of the party. Um, And I think that there's some of the initiatives that we've done. So we've got legally binding campaign promises from all of our candidates so that They've clearly outlined the things that they're promising to do once elected. And if they break any of those promises, they'll step down. Uh, There'll be a by-election to replace them. So some of these initiatives that we're doing that are kind of doing politics differently uh, show that we're not just about transparency, uh, also about evidence-based decision-making, listening to British Columbians, uh, and kind of bringing that honesty and integrity back to BC politics. Okay, well, uh, speaking of listening to British Columbians, uh, what do you see as the biggest issue facing BC? 
Uh, well, personally, I think it's that transparency because I really think that any other issue can be solved if we had a truly transparent government. If you could see where all spending was going, if you could see uh, the information that the government collects on each issue, uh, how the spending is affecting uh, that information, uh, what contracts are signed word for word, see them online, uh, then as a society, we as British Columbians could have a more serious conversation about what we want from our government. Right now, you can listen to rhetoric and spin from the BC the political parties here in BC. Uh, the government's saying everything we're doing is great. There's no negative implications of any of it. Uh, the opposition is saying everything they're doing is horrible. Uh, it's their job as the opposition to oppose everything the government is doing. And you're listening to kind of outside sources who have a vested interest in the issue, uh, kind of telling you either what the government's doing is bad or, or is good. And so instead, we think the government should be more about providing information. They should be saying, this is what we're planning to do. Here are the positives of it. Here are the negatives. Here's why we think the positives outweigh the negatives. Here's all the information for you to see. And uh, then we can have a more rational discussion. You know, from the big parties, all we really seem to hear that they want to do differently is we need more resources invested in education. We need more resources invested in healthcare. But how are those resources being spent? And how are we ensuring that putting more money there is going to get us the outcomes we want, which we think is much more important than the dollar value that you're spending in any one of those buckets within the political system. So. Would you want to take us into maybe the specifics on one or two parts of your platform? Like either you mentioned education or housing is always a hot topic in BC. Yeah, absolutely. So with regards to education, uh, again, it goes back to having that transparency, listening to people on the front lines who have ideas to kind of change the way that education is done, provide better outcomes. Uh, one that we've heard from, from teachers is uh, open source textbooks. So right now, BC is paying you know, upwards of $60 per textbook per student for the rights to use that textbook because we're buying it from some private corporation. And instead, we could be working with other jurisdictions to develop open source textbooks, uh, use those open source textbooks, provide them not just for the kids taking the class, but for the greater society at large. You know, if what we care about is a truly educated society, uh, it shouldn't just be you know, the kids, kids in grade 12 math that should be able to get that textbook, it should be anyone. Uh, textbook could be catered to the needs of individual teachers, individual students, and uh, just once that resource is developed once, it would be uh, would pay for itself many times over with kind of reducing the overall textbook costs. So it's things like those that can come from having that transparency, from having that ability to listen to to the people working within the system to create better solutions. The housing, perhaps you could expand a bit upon, because that's almost certainly going to. Come yeah, yeah, absolutely. Housing's a big issue, especially for this election. Uh, one of the things we want to do is look at removing the BC rental tax, uh, BC tax from rental income. Uh, right now, the relationship's skewed between uh, the amount of income you can earn from creating an investment property or a condo that you're going to sell versus the amount that uh, you can make if you're going to rent out a place. So we want to look at kind of doing things that will help to encourage people to develop rental properties. Um, as a party, we've talked about some other issues, you know, other solutions, uh, maybe looking at limiting the number of properties that someone can own if they're a foreign buyer. Um, we haven't really set a threshold on that, but uh, to look at some of these condo buildings where people are the same person's buying up 10 or 15 units in the same development, uh, is that a reasonable amount? You know, obviously, as a world class city, we want to have people who uh, live in other countries be able to own property here so they can come vacation here, they can come do business here, but uh, do they need to be buying that many as an investment? Um, we've also looked at kind of you kind of moving some uh, property that's owned by the government outside of the Vancouver area. So some of the provincial buildings that, that, that are owned here, uh, they could be located further into Burnaby or Coquitlam or uh, Richmond, Surrey, where the property's cheaper, it would free up land within the city. Uh, that land could be used to develop co-op housing or social housing. So you mean housing. like take the offices that are downtown and... Yeah, I, I mean, ICBs... Not like literally pick up a building, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's what up, no, 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 exactly. So, you know, you look at something like ICBC and they own a waterfront tower in North Vancouver. Uh, do we need to have a building like that that, you know, is a multi-million dollar property for government workers to be working in? Uh, we could instead, you know, either sell that land, use the money to build a much cheaper building, or use that land to build uh, co-op co housing or, or uh, housing 
that you know potentially the market housing could pay for the co-op housing to be built there and uh, then locate the building somewhere else right as well do we want to be encouraging both government workers to be commuting into the city do we want to be encouraging um, people who need to access services at those buildings to be commuting into the city as well adding to more congestion or should we locate those services further outside the city and kind of decrease congestion by having people flow the other way so you know it's some of those things that we don't want to pretend as a political party we have all the answers to every single problem, but we think through that transparency, through that ability to look at each issue uh, under a microscope um, in a transparent situation, we can come up with solutions for everything. Yeah, I really like the model and the idealism of this sort of you know open source platform where people, you're, I looked at it and it's on Reddit, right? You thumbs up, thumbs down, the ideas you like and anything can be pitched. But the risk I see with that and the danger, maybe you've thought about this already, I hope so, is how do you make sure you get a diversity of voices in there? And it's not just like you and your friends who happen to probably also be like urban Vancouverites with similar ideas. Yeah, yeah, And absolutely. especially like people who don't have the time or the money or the technology to get on there. For sure. That's definitely a concern. Uh, so it's one of the reasons why we've, we've had that always as an underlying part of the platform, to have an online platform to make politics and government easily accessible for people, right? It, it stems from this idea that we shouldn't have this 150-year-old style of democracy where your only chance for input is once every four years when you can have your vote. But instead, with technology the way it is, you should be able to give your feedback when you're waiting in line for a coffee or something, just pull out your smartphone and, and a few minutes uh, be accessible enough for people. Um, but yes, there's definitely a concern about the diversity of voices that would exist there, uh, concerns for people who have access to technology issues. Uh, so we think that it can't just be an online forum and an online place to give input. So all of our co candidates have uh, signed in their legally binding promises to have a uh, open house town hall style meeting every three months within their constituency so people from their community can go there every three months they can hear about what their MLA is doing on their behalf and voice their concerns to the audience right so you know that will be more accessible to some people who can't necessarily get online uh, we also envision every government building uh, potentially being a place where people can access that system right so you know, you can go to the library and the librarians there will be able to facilitate getting you online, getting you uh, access to the internet to, to help find information about what the government is doing and to help you be able to give feedback to the government through those online platforms. As well, kind of repurposing the Freedom of Information Department because all this information will be online by default. So they'll be able to help people uh, sort through the information that's already online and find the stuff that they're looking for. So... You have this feedback mechanism uh, that you'd like to put in place, but a lot of times what happens is something unexpected comes up between elections, there's a crisis unfolds. Like when we went into the general election in 2000, we didn't know what was going to be happening a year later. Uh, and, you know, the person in power had to react to that. So how do you see uh, yourself putting forward that kind of credibility and ability to react quickly while also maintaining the um, feedback with the community? Yeah, I think um, people, people are willing to understand that, that some things need to be reacted to quickly and there isn't always going to be that opportunity on every single issue to, to take the time to, to get uh, input from everyone. But I think that if we start instead by a position of default where everything, everything you can, you should put through that process. And occasionally there's going to be a few things that come up that uh, aren't able to have as thorough of a vetting um, to the public before a decision is made, then people will be more understanding, right? And, and even through that process, of course, not everyone's going to agree with everything you're doing, but at least if you're being honest, if you're being transparent about, about it, people can see that... Uh, you, you're at least trying to, to include as many voices in the discussion as possible. The model you sort of pitch and your political party really pitches is post-partisan, let's say. But so the question just is begging to be asked, should we just do away with all the other political parties and you know, establish <laughs> the YPP <laughs> dictator, not, you know, benevolent dictatorship? <laughs> no, I mean, obviously that... In some respects, that is the idea. Uh, we don't have a party whip or party discipline, so we allow our 
representatives to represent the views of their constituents and the views of their own conscience. Um, and you know, ultimately, we do believe it would be better if there wasn't political parties. Do I do I believe that it's possible? I don't know. I mean, most people would argue that uh, by nature political parties would would form, whether they're officially branded as that, and uh, you know, whether you have financing rules that encourage political parties the way we do now and, and discourage people from running as independents um, is, is a question as to whether that would encourage political parties or discourage them, you know, if you change those rules. Um, but ultimately we think that one of the big problems with BC politics today is the amount of power that the large political parties have. So YPP is actively working to try and take some of that away from the large political parties and give it back to the individual voters. And, and we think that that comes through that lack of party discipline. We think that comes through uh, ideas like listening to British Columbians. And uh, you know, we think that it would be a good thing if there was um, more cooperation among political parties and, as opposed to uh, everyone just towing a party line. One thing that, w that we believe in is that there shouldn't be any whip votes in the legislature. So, for example, you know, something like the budget comes up for a vote and it doesn't pass. Why does that mean we need to trigger a re-election, right? Why do we need to all go back out and vote for a new party to, to come into power? Can we not just uh, send the budget back to the drawing board and try and work on it a little bit more and then send it back to try and pass? Can we not maybe split the budget up into smaller parts and say, okay, everyone agrees to this amount of healthcare sp spending, we're going to pass that as one section. Let's pass this funding for education, all right? And then when you get into the uh, more difficult parts that, that people don't agree on as much, maybe those don't deserve to pass, right? So. Everyone agrees to spend the money, no one agrees to raise the money. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, problem. yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, I think that it, there is that idea that there should be less power for political parties, for sure. So you're kind of pitching a much more citizen-engaged version of democracy, but a lot of the issues that governments deal with are incredibly complicated and often have uh, solutions or facts behind them that are counterintuitive and aren't easily a common sense sort of thing. So how do you balance something that's a good policy but on the face of it is counterintuitive or unpopular or any of those sorts of issues? Sure, yeah, it's definitely a concern. I mean, uh, it's one of the reasons that our feedback mechanism, uh, you know, that ability for people to vote on every issue leads to non-binding referendums on every issue. So at the end of the day, it is still your elected representative's uh, job to do what they think is in the best interest of their constituents and uh, BC as a whole. But um, they should be taking into account the feedback they're getting. If they're not going to vote along the lines of the feedback they're getting from their constituents, they better have a good reason why they're not voting that way. And you know, so it might come down to, well, only 20% of people turned out. We think that the people who turned out to vote are the ones with the most vested interest in the outcome. Or it's one of those issues, like you say, where uh, you know the the most obvious solution is not the best solution. Um, so at the end of the day, it is you know the MLA's job to do the research and be more informed. Uh, but when they make that decision, they should be able to spell that out to the people of their constituency. And we'd like to think that most people would would be able to follow that uh, logic. And um, you know, again, if they're not just listening to biased sources telling them that what's happening is good or bad, but they can see the information for themselves, uh, they'll probably be able to to get alongside and, and agree with it. And, you know, again, you're not going to make everyone happy on every issue, but as long as you're kind of going through uh, the process, you'll we'll have better governance than we have today, for sure. All right, I think we have just a couple more questions. I'm assuming as sort of the smaller party with most of the deck stacked against you, you're in favor of some kind of electoral reform. What would be either your personal or the party's preferred uh, system or preferred method to find the right system? Yeah, uh, so we actually recently passed uh, 14 proposals through the party's membership. Uh, and there's a couple on electoral reform, one on provincial electoral reform and one on municipal electoral reform. And basically uh, the proposal wasn't very detailed in terms of what uh, system we would suggest, but it basically says that we're in favor of systems that provide proportional outcomes. Uh, we're in favor of systems that take power away from political parties and give it back to individual voters. 
um, and specifically STV was the one that's been proposed here in BC before, single transferable vote, uh, that allows voters to vote across party lines, doesn't really force you to, to stay within the confines of a specific political party, which, and, and that's why we believe that that's much better than MMP or any of the other forms where you're usually voting for a party um, or a candidate, candidates from the same party. Uh, and so we want something that, that kind of takes that power away again from the political parties and gives it back to the voters. So anything else you didn't get to say or do you want to just tell people where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. Please check us out online, yourbc.ca. We're your political party. And uh, we'd love to have any of your feedback on that platform discussion about any of the things we're doing, any suggestions you have for making BC better. Join us online and uh, help make BC a better place. Thanks, guys. Thanks, James. Thank you. Well, I'm Clayton Mowat, and I'm the leader of the BC Libertarian Party. And... What is, just do a quick background on what the BC Libertarians are for those who've never come across it. Yeah, uh, well, the party was formed in 1986, and um, we advocate for the, the standard sort of uh, libertarian stuff that you would expect. So we're for, for less government, smaller government, um, lower taxes, or no taxes, ideally, um, and a, a sort of a, a voluntary approach to all relationships in, in society between individuals and, and groups. Why did you decide to get involved with the Libertarian Party rather than, say, one of the more established parties? Yeah, well, I how I came to the Libertarian Party was that um, in the last federal election, um, I was looking around for a party to vote for. Um, basically, I've, I've always been pretty cynical about, about politics. Um, you know, I, I realized that a lot of the, the people in there and, and the parties are there to, you know, to get more power for themselves. And, you know, they, they pass laws that are in, in the interests of, um, you know, the, the groups that support them. So I was kind of cynical, but I always felt strongly about environmental issues. So I usually voted green. But then I, I thought, well, geez, you know, I don't know if voting green is going to, to help anymore. It seems like that that strategy of taking a particular set of issues and creating a party to forward those issues, uh, that it had plateaued, right? There was, it seemed like there was a certain amount of people who were just gonna vote green and then it would just stay like that. So I thought, okay, well, I'll look around and see what else is out there. And then I discovered the, the Libertarian Party and I thought, wow, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, the kind of combination of fiscal conservatism with uh, like non-interventionist foreign policy. Uh, was was that that sort of a matchup I had not seen before in one political party, um, and so I thought, okay, hey, I'm sold. So I, I voted Libertarian, and then I went to find out if there was something happening provincially uh, that I could get involved with, and I discovered the BC Libertarian Party. Right. So you're sort of new to the leadership and new to the party at the same time. Yeah. Uh, how's that going so far? It's going great. So when I came on board, um, it was all. A lot of people in, in the party who have been doing this for decades, basically. So they're, they're kind of like the, the generation older than me. And um, so they've been doing this for a while. And every election, they run a few candidates. The kind of high water mark previously was 17 candidates in 1996. And um, last election, they ran eight. So I saw, okay, well, hey, there's a huge potential here. I mean, I feel like there's... A group of voters like me who are not well served by the existing political parties and would like to have uh, an option that, um, yeah, as I said, is a kind of combination of, of fiscal conservatism with a more uh, liberal social policy. Who are some of those exciting candidates? How many can? Well, first, I guess, how many candidates are you hoping to get for this election? And then who are sort of your standout stars? Yeah, so we've we've got um, thirty four people who have agreed to run. So I'm hoping that uh, pretty much all of them, except there might be a couple who, who don't manage to get their paperwork in in time. They've got until Tuesday midday to, to do that. So, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll certainly have over 30. And there's a couple of guys uh, in the more remote parts of the province that I think could do very well. So one of them is John Rempel, and he's in the Nechaco Lakes riding, which is sort of north central west i guess bc <laughs> sort of on the road from 
uh, Prince George over to the coast if you go if you go west from there. So he's been very actively, uh, you know, reaching out to the people in, in his riding. He's been, you know, the first to file his his paperwork with the elections BC, and so he he could do surprising things. Um, and as well, uh, Keith Komar, who's one of our directors, and he's also involved with the Libertarian Party of Canada as a as a uh, coordinator uh, for them. And uh, so he's over in Cranbrook. And so what's what's in common uh, with with both these guys? Um, and where they are is that they're well known in their communities and they're in parts of the province that just do not feel well served by the current government or really any government. They're, they're so far from Victoria and from the lower mainland, which is, you know, really the, the you know, the hub of, of commerce and politics and everything that they feel like, well, you know, we, we pay these taxes and we support the system just like every other British Columbian, but we don't get the benefits that they get. So the, the example that uh, uh, Keith Comar has given me is the MRI truck. So they don't have uh, an MRI machine locally in any of the hospitals. So they put it on a, on a big trailer and they drag it around all these different, uh, you know, smaller towns in the eastern part of BC. And the, of course, the wait lines are so long to, to get an MRI that even when people see the truck coming to town, they say, well... I know how many people are in line in front of me, and I don't think I'm going to get on it this time. So I see it right there, but I know it's going to be another six months. So it's stuff like that that people say, okay, well, we, we, we pay for this lovely welfare state, but we don't necessarily get all the benefits. So either give us the same benefits that people in the South Coast can get, or let's scale it back. Let's have more money in our pockets. With that, we can start businesses and, um, you know, pay for the increasing cost of living that we have. So a lot of third parties have credibility issues. They aren't seen as kind of serious alternatives. How do you see the Libertarian Party addressing that? Um, Well, I think those are valid concerns. Uh, The way that I look at it is people, uh, most people, uh, they vote kind of pragmatically in in a first-past-the-post system. They, They want their vote to to count for something. You know, there, there are people who also just vote on, on principle, and that's wonderful. Those are the voters who we're, we're mainly trying to reach uh, in this election cycle. But yeah, to, to get credibility, you need to run enough candidates to have a mathematical possibility of winning an election. And we're not there yet. We're covering a, a third of the ridings, uh, as I said. So we're looking forward to four years from now, running two-thirds uh, of the, the candidates in two-thirds of the province, or maybe the whole province, and that way people say, okay, hey, these guys can form government. Let's see what their platform is about. Well, maybe take us right into there then. What is, what do you sort of see as the biggest issues of BC and what's the sort of libertarian, BC libertarian position to solve that? Well, I see, as I kind of hinted at a moment ago, uh, we have big issues in healthcare. So the, you know, the, the wait time uh, for people to get, you know, from the time they you know, get in to see their GP to when they can get a procedure done is something like 25 weeks on average in, in BC if we if we take the Fraser Institute at their numbers. And um, I think that this is, come on, this is terrible. We can do better than that. Uh, and it's not an issue of money necessarily. Healthcare is the biggest budget item in BC. Uh, we spend many, many billions of dollars on it, but the system is not meeting people's needs. So I got a letter uh, a couple days ago. In fact, it was an open letter to all the party leaders uh, for all the BC political parties from a doctor who lives just down the road from me in my, in my constituency. And he asked the question about elective procedures. So his wife needs a hip replacement. And the way he put it is, okay, they call this an elective procedure uh, and you wait in line for this sort of procedure. But hey, if you can't walk because you need a new hip or you need a new knee, like your total quality of life is pretty much shot. Like you you can't work, you you can't go buy groceries, so many things that you can't do. So um, under our current system, for her to to go outside of the um, existing public health system, even if she wants to, to pay for those services privately, well, 
she has the option. There's a couple clinics around that will do that sort of thing, but technically it's not legal. Am I right? The Canada Health Act generally has said that. Yeah. And the federal government, I think, takes a don't do that kind of approach. Yeah, if we want to get money from the feds, so we have to pay into, I don't know transfer quite. Transfer payments. Yeah, transfer payments, right? And that's earmarked for healthcare. Well, if we want to continue to get that, we have, we have to say, well, no no private healthcare in the province. So, so I, I just don't get it. I mean, yeah, I understand pragmatically, okay, we have to give this money to Ottawa and we want the money back in the province for this sort of thing. But on a, on a moral level, you know, to say to somebody, we say to the patient and we say to the doctor, no, you two cannot make a, an agreement between the two of you where you exchange services for money. We, the third party as the government or the people or whatever you want to call it, are going to insert ourselves in this relationship and say, no, you can't do that. For me, that's, that's a major moral issue and we, can't, we shouldn't be stopping people from, from doing that. Now, am I advocating for getting rid of the public health care system? No. I realize that a lot of Canadians are, are, are very attached to it. I, need, I think we need to think outside the box about how we can make it better. And this is, this is the BC Libertarian Party approach, at least on this, uh, on this issue of if people are willing to pay for those services, let them pay for it. Um, let uh, doctors and um, health care providers provide those services. And we hope that that will take some of the pressure off of the public health care system, reduce those wait times for everybody else who chooses to stay in the public system. Uh, is there any other issues that you see as a major uh, ones yeah. for the selection? Well, we look at the crown corporations that we have. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I often talk to people about is ICBC and how ridiculous it is that we are forced to buy our automobile li liability insurance through ICBC. Um, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. Okay, fine, you want to be the regulator and deal with driver's licensing, but why not let the market handle uh, the this part of auto insurance? We've already decided we're going to let the market handle it for, you know, collision and, and other types of automobile insurance. So let's just do that. The rates are way too high. I'm hearing that a lot, especially from, from young people. Uh, you know, young people are, are now forced with, okay, well, I'm going to have to pay, you know, $2,500 a year or, or more for, for car insurance. So that's a lot of money. And then they're, they're having to weigh, well, do I live, because they have to weigh cost of living in terms of renting accommodation. So now they're, they're forced to say, well, okay, do I live in the city where it's expensive, but I can at least take public transit to get places so I don't have to own a car? Or do I live further out? but I have to pay for auto insurance. So we're, I think we're really putting young people who are still trying to finish school and get their careers uh, kick-started uh, in a difficult bind when we ask them to pay for stuff like that. But the, this piece of um, uh, the, the platform uh, is about giving people more choice when it comes to all the services that, uh, that are provided in the province. So you, know, you can look at other things like liquor. Why do we have the you know all of the liquor sales going through one main distributor which is owned by the province i don't get that you know it just doesn't make any sense to me so let's like i would say get rid of bc liquor just let the private market handle it come on we're all adults now i think we can figure out when it's okay to go and buy beer and how much to buy and you know we don't need a nanny state telling us what to do there at very so, least, we were able to get some beers for tonight because yes. <laughs> BC Liquor has gotten to the point where they will open on Easter Sunday, the day we're recording this. But <laughs> I'll take your point to some extent, Yeah, <laughs> even with my socialist leanings. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned environmentalism earlier and sort of your concern of what led you to be briefly involved with the Greens. Like, Could you broaden sort of a discussion of where the BC Libertarians are on the environment? I noticed on your, well, I guess... Like, we did look at your platform, I noticed you yeah. repeal the carbon tax. So, like, what would you do then to solve climate change? Um, I don't think it's the government's job to solve climate change. Um, I think before we step up to do that, we need to, to, to know, first of all, that human-induced climate change is happening. So I know that most people think that it is. Um, I'm not completely convinced of that. Uh, Probably I would say, yeah, well, we should err on the side of caution and say, 
yeah, it probably is happening and we should uh, transition away from fossil fuels. Um, I just don't see uh, a carbon tax as the way to doing uh, as the way of doing that, as you say. Um, what can we do instead? Well, there's a lot of different approaches that, that uh, people can take. And what I would like to do is reduce people's taxes so that they have more disposable income so that they can, can put it towards the solution that they see for climate change. So for some people, it's going to be improved technologies or some sort of uh, technology that, uh, you know, either in, in, in fuels and energy production or in sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Um, for other people, it could be, uh, you know, energy efficiency. And so these sorts of solutions, I think, are already in the works. Maybe they need more support. But the problem with having the government say, okay, well, this is the one right way to fix it. You kind of put all your eggs in, in one basket. And I would rather have people who are passionate about that issue. And I know that there are many of them uh, on the West Coast here. You, you put your money, your, your volunteer hours, whatever, towards fixing this problem in the way that you think will best solve it. So you're it. talking about a like blanket drop the taxes or like a specific targeted decrease to use for, say, reducing greenhouse gas, like a, car, no. a greenhouse gas credit almost? No, Just, I'm thinking drop the taxes across okay. the board. Okay. And then help people do it right. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're, you're consistent. See, so you don't see a role for an incentive by having there be a price for carbon then? everybody kind of figuring out for themselves the best way to reduce that cost. What does a price for carbon mean in practice though? I mean, yeah, I think if you, if it was something that you could price, but I don't know, then again, how, how far down the line do you want to go? Like every time I breathe out, I'm producing carbon dioxide. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a pollutant in fact. So yeah, you could do that, but I just don't, I haven't seen the way that it works well enough to really incentivize people. I know that that's what the carbon tax was meant to do, but I just don't see the evidence that it has worked. It's made gasoline more expensive. Does that mean people drive any less because of that? Uh, I don't know. Fair enough. I mean, we're going to disagree, but fair enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, switching gears, I guess, as a sort of party that's not likely to elect anyone just like sort of your political party that we just had in here and a number of other sort of smaller parties mm. are you supportive of efforts to change the voting system like electoral reform to make it more you know favorable to your party and if so you know what kind of model would you want to see us move towards yeah this has been a, a hot topic lately and we've debated it internally within the party a bit um but we didn't come to any sort of conclusion on it. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm agnostic on the issue. Uh, I'm happy to let, you know, the, the bigger parties and, and even some, some smaller parties duke it out and whatever solution they come to. Okay, if it's a proportional system, I'm sure that would, that would help us. Uh, but I don't know. I, I, there, there's, no, there's no clear way to apply libertarian principles on this one and, and come to a solution. So... As I say, I'm agnostic about it. I noticed your platform didn't have a section on infrastructure or transportation at all, and it's come up as a major campaign issue. What mm -hmm. were the announcements last week from the big parties? And just in general, everybody's really fed up with all the congestion here yep. in the city. Um, how would the libertarians uh, deal with this file? Well, I, I think that it's probably a proper role for government to do something like maintain provincial highways and, and bridges between municipalities and, and that sort of thing. Um, whether we need to, to spend more on infrastructure, I don't know. It's not, it's not an issue that we've uh, looked into in any great depth. I know that there are plans in the works to, to upgrade a lot of the, the infrastructure. The, the kind of interesting thing that I see on this issue is, is the wrangling that's going on between the different levels of government and and people wanting different levels of government to pay for this i kind of think it's wrong to make the guy in truro nova scotia pay for my little local bridge in in north vancouver you know i i just it just doesn't seem right to me you know i think it should be like mostly municipal and then the province kicks in a bit and then the feds i don't know well 
you know, the feds, they always want to come in and, you know, they want to cut the ribbon and be the, you know, the, the bringers of the largesse. And of course, they've got so much darn money because we pay so many of our taxes to them that, okay, we expect to get stuff from them now, but that's not really the solution. Cut back on people's federal tax and, you know, allow the, the municipalities and, and the province to do more in that area, I would think. It seems like the sort of libertarian approach would almost be to be more sympathetic to road, to road, road tolls and user fees, sort of. Yep. So would you be in favor of that and like bridge tolls and congestion charges or? Haven't really looked at it in a great amount of detail, but yeah, that, that would make more sense, really. I mean, people who use the bridge can, can pay for it. So I was, you know, I was surprised to see, is, it's the NDP, right, who wants to get rid of all they the They want to get tolls? rid of them fully. The yeah. Liberals will like cap it at 500. Okay. No, I mean, it's, it's a good way to pay for, for the infrastructure for those who, who use it, right? Yeah. I think we're actually all on the same page on that <laughs> <Okay>. one. <laughs> cool. I think we can do a couple more questions if you have any, Scott. Yeah. Um, well, actually, just a follow-up from the earlier one on the um, Crown Corporations. Yep. Uh, would you be looking to privatize or just remove the monopoly uh, powers? I'd be looking to remove the monopoly powers. The, the problem with um, when people say privatize... Uh, the issue with that is that most of the way privatization has gone uh, in, in Canada and many other places is, okay, we've got this public monopoly. Now we're going to sell it to a private entity. So it'll be a private monopoly. Okay, that's worse. <laughs> I mean, at least with a public monopoly, it, it's bad enough, but you have some other levers that you can use through the voting system to, to deal with that, even if it's very indirect. And so, no... We don't want to, to, to do that. We want to take away the monopoly and we want to allow competition. We don't want to put barriers to entry. So yeah, I, I'd like to see that in, in many parts of our economy. I'd like to see that with, with uh, hydroelectricity, for example. So you know, going back to uh, how do we deal with, with climate change and, and having a less fossil fuel driven economy. What if we allowed people to uh, sell electricity back to the grid. Now I understand that they can currently do that, but all they get is, is a deduction off their BC Hydro bill. Well, that doesn't really provide much financial incentive to people. But you know, if we, if we remove that and allowed people to actually sell for profit back onto the grid, you know, we're in pretty cloudy Vancouver, but I hear you know, uh, solar technology is getting better all the time. Maybe we will reach a point where that's a feasible thing, or maybe there will be some other sort of small scale uh, green generation technology that people could uh, invest in that would allow them to to um, power their own homes and sell to their neighbors. I guess my last question uh, coming up is 420 and as you mentioned you're, there's going to be a big rally here in Vancouver. I guess it's a big day here and libertarians are always well represented there. There's a nice crossover. What's the sort of BC libertarian approach? We, the federal government's talking about legalization. Yeah. How do you see BC's role because a lot of the nitty-gritty looks like it's going to get passed down the province. So what would be the ideal libertarian approach to sort of distribution and sales and regulations? Yeah, uh, as little as little regulation as possible. We want to keep it out of the hands of, of minors, of course. Um, but, you know, we should we should treat this uh, as we as we treat, uh, you know, Alcohol, for example, but even I think alcohol is a bit is a bit overregulated. Um, but we want it. We want to have a craft industry. We don't want it to be monopolized by a few large, uh, well politically connected players, uh, which seems to be the the model that um, that Justin Trudeau's Liberals favor. Uh, so we don't we don't want to go that route. We want to keep it as a small scale industry. This has big potential for those rural communities in BC to to become uh, producers and to provide an economic boost to them. Um, and and the same goes for retail. We we don't want to have it uh, in the hands of of a small group. Let the market handle it, and this will keep prices down, which is very important in terms of. Of, of the legalization part of it, because other jurisdictions have gone with a with an approach that uh, regulates fairly heavily, and then the cost 
either either through regulation or through additional taxes on it that are beyond whatever the the regular sales tax is for the jurisdiction. And so what it means is okay, well, uh, if if Bud is you know five dollars a gram more to buy through the legal channel than it is off the street, well, people just keep buying on the street. So if you want, if you really want legalization to work, you've got to keep the regulation minimal so that the costs stay down. All right. Well, maybe just finish off by telling people where they can find out more information and where they can vote for BC Libertarians should they've been convinced today. Yeah. Well, check us out uh, at our website, which is libertarian.bc.ca. Um, we've got a list of candidates up there on our candidates page, so you can see if there is a candidate in your your riding. Uh, they'll show up on the ballot uh, on May 9th. And we're also on Facebook. Uh, if you just search for BC Libertarian Party, you'll find us on there. We're on Twitter at BC Libertarians. And um, well, I, I've got my own uh, YouTube channel. If you look for Clayton Wellwood, you can see a couple uh, videos there. But uh, yeah, and we're, we're always looking for more people to get involved, uh, looking to, to grow our membership and, uh, and yeah, really uh, move forward in a, in a strong way towards the, uh, the next election. Thank you very much. All right, thanks for joining us. So my name is Lindsay Teds. I'm an associate professor of economics in the School of Public Administration at the University of Victoria. Well, it's great to sit down with you in a noisy downtown <laughs> Victoria Street. Uh, you had a great blog, we thought, on the BC Liberals platform and specifically sort of going after their fairy tax credit or discount. Or tax deduction or whatever, whatever it is. It is. <laughs> uh, and I thought I'd just sort of get your thoughts on some of the other pitches being made. We chatted just briefly about some of the problems or challenges. Uh, maybe just sort of run me through what we were talking about with the BC NDP's platform and why it's not affordable. Well, the BC NDP platform makes two major commitments, one of which is to a $10 a day daycare, and the other of which is to eliminating the MSP premiums. The $10 day daycare we know is costed out at about $1.5 billion once fully implemented. But it's not going to be fully implemented for 10 years. Uh, and the platform is only costed over, the, over a three-year period. The MSP premium we know is going to cost about $2.2 billion um, once it's eliminated. Uh, but again, over the short term, they're only committing to a 50% reduction, exactly the same as the BC Liberals. And so that's only a $1 billion commitment over this three-year period. So they're short about $2 billion in their platform for this, this, this rollout. So what they haven't, in fact, indicated is how they're going to make up for the difference between what they're costing over the short term and what, in fact, the full rollout is going to cost. One of the things the NDP is proposing is this $400 uh, annual tax credit for renters. It's not necessarily clear, I would suspect, you think, on what that will look like. But do you have sort of thoughts about how that could help or not affect the rental market? Yeah, that, that one is simply, for me, a horizontal tax equity issue. We have the homeowner grant for homeowners, and this helps um, subsidize property taxes. So anybody who owns a, owns a home and is a resident in it and meets certain criteria receives a minimum of $570 rebate on their property taxes. That is not open to uh, renters who pay the full cost of property taxes through their um, rent payments. So this is simply equating renters and homeowners by extending that homeowner grant to renters. You know, the other way to do it would be to eliminate the homeowner grant, but that is certainly not... Um, politically palatable, it makes economic sense, but as we all know, economics and politics don't go hand in hand. Uh, so to me, this, this if you're not going to get rid of the homeowner grant, this rental rebate makes sense. For me as a tax economist, I love it because it's actually going to give us great information on the side of tax non-compliance. We know small suppliers of rental properties don't in fact report their rental income. They abuse the homeowner grant by claiming it when they actually don't meet the criteria. Um, they also exploit the principal uh, residence exemption on capital gains when they go to sell their house. So we're actually going to get a lot of great information to allow us to accrue even more tax revenues. And I actually think this will pay for itself if it's implemented properly. 
and I've already encouraged John Horgan to come talk to me <laughs> uh, and uh, work closely with the Ministry of Finance to make sure that we do this right if we're going to do it. Fantastic. While we're on homes, Christy Clark in the last year brought in the foreign buyers tax and in Vancouver they're talking about a sort of vacant home tax and I think the BC Greens are looking at expanding both of those, both the amount of the foreign buyers tax and making it province-wide. Other parties, I think, are also talking about these kind of issues. What are your, what's your sort of take on them, and are they helpful in the sort of housing crisis? I'm much more bully on the vacant home tax, and this is because um, people who have uh, people who are not, in fact, living here in Canada are not paying taxes here in Canada, and as a result, um, they're not contributing to municipal infrastructure, health care, all of these sorts of things that are, you know, are very costly for us to provide. So that, that vacant, um, vacant tax helps ensure that we get some tax revenues from people that are actually, you know, um, probably coming here one or two weeks a year to live in these homes. And then for the otherwise, they're vacant. The, the speculation tax, uh, I, I actually wrote about it in the summer for the, the Globe and Mail, certainly just providing it um, within Vancouver and the constraints that they put on it, I actually think it was a terrible rollout. Um, extending it to the whole province, I think, would help here in Vancouver. We, I'm Victoria. here in Victoria. I forget where I live sometimes. Um, we've already seen um, a lot of uh, that coming over to Victoria. We've had huge increases in our um, real estate prices, Nanaimo as well. Um, so at least extending it beyond those boundaries might help a little bit. But in the end, who is in fact driving up? prices of real estate. It is not foreigners, it's domestic buyers buying with their hearts and not their heads. We see this over and over again. Uh, and so I actually don't think that this is the root origin. I know all the rhetoric is out there. Um, we are now hearing it in Toronto with John Tory going to talk to Catherine, Kathleen Wynne about a similar tax in Ontario because now Ontario is facing the consequence. Now Ottawa cares about the price of real estate. <laughs> Uh, we're probably going to start seeing some action, but no, I don't think this is the right way to go. But the vacant tax, I think, is, is appropriate. Fair enough. So your blog had a good sort of discussion of the BC Liberals' plans on ferries, which is still vague. And But the NDP is talking more about just flat rolling back the ferry rates and bringing in the seniors' discount. Do you have a sort of counter take on that plan relative to the Liberals' tax credit and, or deduction? And eventual discount program? Well, I think what would be nice is if everybody could just figure out whether or not ferries are extension of the roadways or not. Can we just have that discussion and make a decision and get on with it? That would be helpful. Um, for some communities, yes, we know this. They are an extension of the roadways. We subsidize roadways more than anything. Uh, and so ferry dependent communities have a rational argument here. Um, and I, we need to have that discussion. In some ways, they are not, though, for all communities, an extension of the roadway. Um, with, uh, in some ways, they are um, tourism, they are, um, you know, they are a luxury good. And we need to think very carefully about the appropriate pricing, time of year pricing, peak demand pricing. Um, we have a lot of information on people that we can use um, to do different kind of pricing to allow for it to be, you know, a revenue generator as well as allowing residents to um, use it as a roadway system. Um, it is not 1965 anymore. It's uh, 2017. We have much more technology available to us to allow for differentiation pricing. We do this on roadways all over the world, not in Canada. We're not familiar with this. Um, but Europe and Singapore and Asia, all these countries do this very well. Uh, we really need to have this discussion and think about it very carefully. What the parties are proposing is political rhetoric. It's just by votes. And I really don't think that voters should buy into this. I imagine you have a very similar opinion on the tolling bridges in Metrovan and the different positions they've taken, the sort of either $500 a year cap versus just no tolls. 
Well, I, I think there is a little bit of an argument to make of why just those two bridges. I mean, I think Vancouverites do have a right to say, why just us? Why just these two bridges and not anything else? Other, we did used to pay that toll on the Coquihalla, which was eventually eliminated. Um, so we're left with these two bridges. Why those two? Why not on all bridges? Um, we do have to think about how do we go about paying for infrastructure? And economists like user fees because it makes sure that the the people using them actually do pay for the infrastructure. But I am, um, I was reading on Twitter, somebody who had an interesting point, and as a tax economist, I have to weigh, you know, tax theory versus perception, because perception is important. And this individual talked about being nickeled and dimed. And if the perception is in paying multiple taxes feels like you're paying more, then if you're just paying one higher income tax, then it is in fact more distortionary than it would be otherwise. Um, so we do have to think about perception versus reality and make sure everything all kind of aligns and make sure that the communications of things is appropriate. We're terrible at communicating tax policy, <laughs> absolutely terrible. The nice part about though tolls and user fees and regulatory charges is that there is a legal constraint on them that requires politicians to actually reinvest every dime raised in the infrastructure that it's um, uh, uh, garnered from. So that you know that if you pay that $5 toll, it goes back into that particular piece of infrastructure. Taxes aren't the same way. So, you know, there's costs and benefits to everything. Right. I guess we can't talk too much in general about the BC Greens because they're sort of trickling their platform out plank by plank. And mm -hmm. like you were saying earlier, you really want to see the whole sort of picture first. Maybe you could just mm -hmm. sort of illuminate why it's important to know the whole plan before you can critique it as parts. Well, you don't know what you're giving up to get something, right? Right now, I don't know if in order to get um, junior kindergarten, if in order to get that, I have to pay $10,000 more a year in taxes. So is, is the benefit worth the cost? Without knowing that, there's no way to evaluate the whole package. Um, so without that, it's really hard to say. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an economist. Opportunity cost is, is, is quite important. There's some really interesting pieces to the green platform. Um, it's capturing a lot of attention. It's fairly sophisticated. Um, we're really waiting for the whole platform to see whether or not it meets expectations. It does have some problems to it. Uh, it is, in fact, uh, making some assumptions about the tax system that is incorrect. For example, they've announced a, a $750,000 cap on the principal, um, principal residence uh, capital, gains. capital gains. They can't do that. That's federal. That is not provincial jurisdiction. Um, so in order for them to do that, they actually have to throw out uh, the tax collection agreements that we've signed with Ottawa. You might think that that's not a big deal. That means we have to design our own tax system. We have to collect our own taxes. Uh, that's actually a lot of money to do that. So the sort of controversy around breaking from the HST back to the PST. It'd be that fiasco. It's again. that fiasco all over again. So, uh, and I actually think if the province designed its own tax system, it would look a lot like what we already have. So I don't think it's worth it. It'd be a job creation plan though for bureaucrats <laughs> and collectors. Yes, it, it would in fact be that. <laughs> not, not the one anyone wants. Though. Not the one I don't think anybody wants, yeah. <laughs> Did you have any other comments? Well, I think, you know, if we want to talk a little bit about the BC NDP, um, one of the things that they did announce was, of course, bringing back the high income surtax. I think it is important to talk about that. Um, so this is a uh, increasing the, high, the highest threshold on um, those earning over $150,000 a year. I think it's important to put this into perspective. That's 1.4% of tax filers in the province. Um, most of the, the average income earned by these individuals is over $250,000 a year. Uh, and the amount that um, these individuals will pay on average in a year because of that uh, extra tax is about $2,100. So this isn't, in fact, a, um, a burden on these individuals. And in fact, they will benefit most from daycare, the MSP premium relief, um, the elimination of tolls, 
uh, as well as subsidized ferry fees. So, uh, I, I, again, I, I think we should be careful about the rhetoric of people going out there and saying that um, here they are going out and taxing high-income in, high individuals when they are, in fact, the ones benefiting the most from the rollout of their platform. Right. How do you see that in comparison with the NDP's promise to raise the corporate tax by 1%? Ugh. Do you think that'll have any... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, you know, this one I always find interesting. Okay, so the, the BC Liberals raised the corporate tax in 2010-2011. They went from 10% to 11%. So they did it first. Uh, the NDP are just raising it from 11% to 12%. That will match the corporate income tax in Alberta. Uh, so we shouldn't see a lot of flight of businesses because, in fact, those two provinces are competing for, for businesses across the board. What I do find interesting um, is the rhetoric of small versus big, because both the Liberals and the NDP will cut small business tax, right, from two from 2.5 to 2. Um, so small business, good. Big business, bad. I do not understand that rhetoric. I really don't. I, I don't understand why at this magic cutoff, you're, 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 you're okay, and above that, you're, you're bad. Um, in the end, it doesn't make much of a difference. You know, we, we should like and embrace business. Um, uh, bad is not good or bad, and small is neither good nor bad. Uh, the engines of growth are not small. The engines of growth is new, uh, and new can be big. And new can be small. Um, but no, small businesses are not the engines of economic growth, despite, you know, um, rhetoric. There's lots of research that show this. Um, so yeah, that one I find, I always find that, that business rhetoric quite interesting. <laughs> For sure. Um, I think one other thing to talk about is I know there's a lot of rhetoric going on about um, uh, the only way to protect the economy is to go with the BC Liberals. Um, this came out in the, 20, the, the, the 2015 federal election um, that, you know, if you didn't vote for Harper, the economy was going to tank. Um, you know, we're seeing economic growth around the country picking up. Um, the thing to remember about the economy, and this was the catchphrase, I think it was Mike Moffat at Ivy that came up with this one. The economy will unfold over the next five years, even if my laboratory retriever was prime minister or premier, right? The economy is kind of its own thing. Where policy makes a difference is over 20, 40, 50 years. It doesn't make a difference over the shorter term. So I really don't think people should be concerned as much over what will happen over the shorter term, but they should think about what we want to see over a longer term. Um, and look at the platforms over a longer term horizon. Where are we going to see um, investments pay off in terms of economic growth? And certainly, you know, investments in education are an area where we do, in fact, see real um, returns, particularly when they are, they are targeted to at-risk and lower-income individuals, not, not to people like me <laughs> and my son who is going to be fine no matter what the government does. Yeah. We want to see it targeted. Great. Well, we're seeing promises of investments in education from all the parties, sometimes court-mandated, sometimes more proactive, but my yes. wife's a teacher, so she's excited to see money come and more jobs for teachers, mm. of course. Well, I don't think any of them are actually promising any real investments in post-secondary education. They're all promising to keep the cap, um, and what that in fact means is at the post-secondary level, we're being starved. Uh, so because we aren't seeing, we're seeing the caps, we're not seeing the investments, and so costs keep increasing greater than that cap. Um, so we're, we're actually not doing as well as uh, perhaps other, other levels in terms of the kinds of investments that we're now starting to see in education. So you would want to see sort of more money into post-secondary, sort of unearmarked, because I think some of them are promising the sort of like Oh, tech, 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 engineering, tech, coding. All the sort of niche <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah, I always, find, I always find that focus interesting. And I, I, I should always put a qualifier. My, my husband is an engineer. Uh, he's a computer engineer. He codes, I code, we all code. Um, you learn to code by learning logic and philosophy. That's, that's where the real um, uh, skills in coding come from. Language skills, logic, um, philosophy, argumentation. 
That's where logic comes from. And in terms of uh, economic growth, when you actually look at where um, high employment comes from, um, where uh, 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 employment comes from, where, where we see um, economic stability, public administration. I'm not plugging my <laughs> own program. Um, I just had to put together a big report for my university on um, you know, the benefits of our program. We're looking at a 98.5% employment rate in graduates of public administration. Can't beat that. You cannot beat that. Um, so I think professional schools are actually really, really important for um, employment moving forward because they're tangible skills that translate directly into a job. It's not like you're yeah. graduating with, you know, a history degree, right? Because there's, you know, you can do, have a lot of jobs with a history degree, but... You need to translate it a you bit. You need to translate it a bit. Whereas, you know, when you get a nursing degree, you're, there's you're a real a job right there. Yeah, same with teaching, right? Exactly. I mean, it's a professional degree with a real job right after it. And that's where we're seeing a lot of the employment growth. Great. On tech, I know the BC NDP was very big on it. I think it even came into liberals, the sort of promise to focus government contracts on BC-based tech. But Scott, I know, has a lot of criticism that this sort of goes against the Canada Free Trade Agreement that was just signed and CETA and sort of other free trade agreements. What are your sort of thoughts on these promises versus the reality of what they'll be able to do? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go with Scott. <laughs> um, you, you, you go with the best. Um, and whether or not that that is a local company uh, versus uh, somebody not local um, really depends. I mean, you, you know, it's comparative advantage versus trade. You're not necessarily going to have all of the skills local. Um, we definitely don't necessarily have the programs available here in the province yet to train these, right? I mean, the, the real trainer is Waterloo and the University of Toronto. That's where we're seeing a lot of the... Um, the, the, what do we call them, a cluster um, coming yeah. from, um, where a lot of the skills are. Uh, so I, 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 just, I just think that's a dangerous game. You, 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 you put it open and you see who, who's best at it. But, the, you know, the interesting thing that they also have all of these platforms where they say they want to attract businesses here as well. And one of the ways you attract businesses here is by opening up your, your competition for contracts to businesses that are elsewhere. All right. Well, Elections are a terrible time to decide policy, <laughs> as is famously said. But unless you have anything else you want to add in, I think this was a good conversation. Yeah, no, I think it was, it, it's been great. I, I'm still interested in seeing, you know, where the, the green platform um, comes out. I think it has a, a lot of promise. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how the next couple of weeks unfold. I, I mean, I guess the election is, what, three weeks away, four May weeks away? Seventh, May, May 9th, 7th, I should know this 9th, better. yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the Tuesday is. Whatever the Tuesday is. <laughs> it was two days before our academic review. Um, so, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see it all unfolds. And I just think everybody should not panic. No matter who wins, it's not, it's not the end of the world. It will be fine. The socialist hordes aren't at the gate. The socialist hordes are not and, at the gate. Neither are not according to these platforms by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> Let's end it there. Okay. <laughs> and that has been Politicos. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politicos.ca. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PoliticosPod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. And if you have any ideas for the show, feel free to send it to us. Thanks for listening.